0: The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio.
2: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
3: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Stuart Lord, who is president of Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Naropa is a fascinating place, um, and we're going to learn more about it. You know, the, the Naropa works on integrating the best of East and West traditions in education, and I know Dr. Lord has a lot of perspective on that that we're going to hear he also comes from a long line of um, educational experience, spent time at Dartmouth College as an associate provost and a dean of the William Jewett Tucker Foundation, plus many other um, uh, responsibilities. He was at DePa University as an associate dean. Uh, he has served under the Clinton administration. He served as the executive director of the President's Summit for America's Future, Corporation for National Service and Points of Light Foundation and uh, quite a varied background. Stuart, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you?
4: Doing well. I'm excited to be here and share with you.
3: Where are you today?
4: I'm in Naropa University uh, in my office and I'm eager to, to speak.
3: Oh, wonderful. So let's see. It's uh, It's April, no, it's not, it's March. I'm wanting to speed time up. It's March, and so it's a little bit close to springtime. How is it in Boulder these days?
4: Well, we just finished spring break. Our students are back rested for the next oh. four weeks. Oh, great. Before graduation.
3: Oh, right. Graduation's coming. Oh, cool. Well, you have been with Naropa since 2009. And you um, brought with you a plethora of experience in university education, um, in running, being a leader in universities. And um, a lot of your background is connected to the spiritual side of learning. Tell us a bit about how you became interested in that element of education.
4: Well, I thought, <coughs> excuse me, when I was in uh, college, I thought I'd be an actor. Oh. And I played around with some drama. And then um, my first year, I really felt a sense of calling, <coughs> a sense of um, openness around the spirituality. And I made a commitment to uh, I changed my major from drama to religion.
3: Interesting.
4: And then I went on to seminary and thought I was going to be a pastor of a local church. Oh. And, <clears throat> excuse me. and then I uh, started thinking about where did I grow the most and was challenged the most and how could I serve in a way that helped to prepare the future leaders of America. And it was uh, on the college campus. Hmm. And I did an internship at Texas A&M University. I half-time in the local Presbyterian church and half-time on campus and campus ministry. And from that experience, it really solidified that I wanted to spend my life on the college campus. And started, my first job was at uh, DePaul University because I went to seminary. I graduated from DePaul with my, uh, I mean, from, uh, I went to Princeton. And when I finished my second uh, degree, I went on to DePaul and started as a chaplain. And from there, went to the higher education administration. But it was on a college campus where I was challenged, and my mentors around leadership, my mentors around spirituality and religion, and so it was easy for me to uh, to make that commitment to invest in young people because of some of my mentors who invested in me on the college campus.
3: Well, you know, when I hear you say that you felt a calling when you were considering acting, um, you know, talk about what that was like for you. People say that a lot. I think sometimes that phrase um, gets put out there and and people don't really understand what that is for someone. What was that like for you?
4: Well, I mean, a calling was, um, I guess ever since high school, I was uh, attracted to spirituality and religion. Even when I go further back than that, if... uh, my neighborhood or the the local church that I belonged to, they said that as five years old, they saw me in the pulpit preaching. Oh as five. And so and then I grew up in the church and the church became family for me.
3: Oh. And I
4: guess I I spent a lot of my life running from the truth of of helping people or spirituality and religion. And so when I was home my first year after doing my undergraduate, I began to have lots of dreams about me leading in a spiritual way.
3: How interesting.
4: And from those dreams, I remember calling my pastor up uh, because I had one of those dreams that you can't sleep because it's so vivid and you Uh. you wrestle all night long about it. So I called my pastor and I said, "The walls of Jericho are falling down, hmm. and we need to meet." And I went in and I said to him, "I said, um, I really, feel, I really feel that that uh, I am to serve in ways, uh, whether it be in spirituality or, you know, I, mean, I feel a calling to the ministry, a calling to, um, to to surrender. Calling for me is surrendering." to use my gifts, my talents, and my ability for the benefit of others and in religious communities.
5: Uh-huh.
4: And he said to me, he said, yeah, I knew this a long time ago. He said, <laughs> d- he said, I didn't tell you because I didn't want to influence your decision, but I'm not surprised we're having this conversation. Interesting. And then that following, um, end of that summer, I did my first sermon and began my public commitment for the ministry. This was my first year, after my first year in college. But it was because I realized the, the, the strong commitment and what is required of people who are servants of faith. And, you know, I asked myself, can I measure up? Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I could measure up. And I thought about, you know, the ideal way, you know, thinking about I always had to be available for the people regardless. And, I didn't think I'd measure up and, you know, and to whom much is given, much is expected mm. and how I would, you know, uh, mismanage that opportunity. And then I realized that, uh, you know, the choice was given to me for a reason and that I could be a human being, a real person, and not have to deny myself. Deny myself in the sense of being led by the Spirit, but not deny my creativity, my capacity, for change in the world and my passions, but that I could use my passions for the benefit through a spiritual community.
3: Well, over the next ten years, after that first year in college, you went on to complete your bachelor's degree, get a Master's of Divinity degree at Princeton, a Master's of Theology at Princeton, and a Doctor of Ministry at the United Theological Seminary. You... Really committed yourself to not only being that, but learning that deeply.
4: Yeah, it was very important for me to be able to do that. I remember my minister saying to me that if I was to go to an open heart surgeon, I want to make sure that the open heart surgeon is very well trained
5: Mm.
4: and that God deserved the same discipline. As the preparation of an open heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. And told me that when I, you know, back in when I was a freshman, and said that if I went, that he expected me and that I was to become an educated person of theology, a scholar, and that God would use my training and my full capacity for the benefit of others and for the world and be able to serve. And by being well trained, he said to me, you can, you can serve anywhere. You know, there will be no limits to what you can do and where you can do it. If you discipline yourself and train and, and be involved in training and preparation, he said, think of eight years of training for 80 years of service.
5: <laughs> and that's
4: how he put it to me and said that God deserved the best. And I, and I, I would never go to an open-heart surgeon if that person was not prepared. That I wouldn't, you know, if that, if, if that person said God called them to be an open heart surgeon, would I allow him to perform surgery on me? And the answer is no.
5: <laughs>
4: and he said that that's the same for spirituality that God, that, that, that in a lot of ways, you are working with people's hearts
3: mm-hmm. and you're
4: performing a certain type of open heart surgery. Right. And you need the preparation for that.
3: Right, right. Very, very true. Well, you know, in the, um, the work that I do as an executive coach, I've always perceived that um, the work I do is very much that, that I hold the heart of my client in my hands Mm -hmm. and I don't take that for granted and um, that I know the power I hold as a coach, you know, I can squish that heart
0: if I am
3: not careful and Mm -hmm. um, the idea is to allow that heart to fully function and, you know, pump wildly and be healthy and, um, and ready for whatever is coming. And so I love that analogy you have, that it makes a lot of sense. Now, I've read um, in something that you had done before, that you had said, friendship starts with yourself. Sitting in prayer allows me to be who I am. Mm-hmm. And I... I I'm curious about that. Friendship starts with yourself. So does this mean I need to like me?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it means you have to, uh, the way I say it is, or the way I look at it is, befriending self is when you have a best friend, you accept everything about your best friend.
5: Mm.
4: The things you like, the things you don't, but that's your best friend. And you accept that person person with lots of authenticity and love. And how do you learn to give yourself that? Uh To look yourself in the mirror, and regardless of what you see or what you know about yourself, you give yourself the generosity to be fully alive in all that you are and all that you want to be. And then you extend that to others. But if you haven't learned to extend it to yourself, then I'm not sure you can extend it to others with so much openness and authenticity because you hold back. And how do you, so it starts with self in a way of befriending self, learning to, to love all parts of you, the good, mm-hmm. bad, ugly, right. work with that unconditionally in ways that you also extend it to others. And that's how I uh, have grown to, 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 to know self, that self-awareness part, which to me is a, is a very good passageway to working with others and in difficult situations, to have the patience, but the first patience starts with self. And that makes a lot of others.
3: sense. Yeah. Well, And it seems like that's really something many of us struggle with, when um, especially high achievers, people who really want to make things happen, people who have high expectations of themselves uh, and others have high expectations of them. um, It seems like people have a tendency to be hard on themselves.
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's so easy to be hard on yourself. Um, And I have had to learn over the years, you know, I used to be very hard on myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm still hard on myself, but with a sense of gentleness and a sense of dignity and honor and respect.
5: Hmm.
4: You know, we use those words, dignity, honor, respect, love, and generosity. And we give them to others, and we see so many examples of people giving them to others. But I feel if you give it to yourself first or begin to give it to yourself, introduce yourself to that, then you extend that with a lot of authenticity, which is this notion of authentic leadership. It refers to being open, honest, and real. Uh Open, honest, and real with self and others. And you bring that quality to a task or a situation, and instead of you letting it master you, you begin to have the skills to master the situation uh, and not have it overtake who you are.
5: Mm. So,
3: where were you in your own growth when you began to realize that you needed to be a little easier on yourself?
4: <laughs> uh, well, I think about eight years. ago Well, eight years ago was when I really decided to commit to practicing it. I think when I uh, twenty years ago, I decided to give up worrying. Oh, uh, I just decided. That's a good one. <laughs> I gave up worrying, and, and so I decided not to worry. But that was, that was a commitment. I'm not sure I was, I was good at it. <laughs> but about eight years ago is when I realized that I was giving more than I was receiving.
5: Mm.
4: And that Gandhi sort of voice that I heard as a third-year-old
5: mm.
4: uh, in third grade is, you have to be the change you want in the world. Yeah. And I realized that I wanted a lot from the world. I wanted a lot from others. But I'd ask myself, was I modeling the way? And then realized that that the quality of what I was giving was not being from my authentic self. It was from the role of leader. The, The role of leader or the title and the demand that that role can bring about and realize that as leaders, we have a lot of responsibility and we can bring a lot of good in the world or we can bring a lot of harm in the world. And what we can make that choice consciously to how much good we bring, that we're going to have impact and we're going we're to change things. But it's the quality of what we do and how we do it. And so years ago I realized that the quality that I was producing was not really from my authentic self. And that's when I began meditation practice and began the discipline of, of working with the mind, the self-awareness, and the authentic self in ways that I can, you know, uh, learn the enormous capacity to be true to self.
3: Well, we have a whole lot more to talk about when we come right back with Dr. Stuart Lord. he will be right back. Thank you.
2: consulting developing leaders worldwide if you think you've seen online TV before
0: Pfeifferlick. You'll get an eye opening education about some of the misconceptions of the financial world. If you are a business owner, working professional, or successful American, you will benefit from the information on our program. Our guests will include financial service professionals, international tax and estate attorneys, and CPAs. We'll identify solutions that you can implement now to get the most of your money. Tune in Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for It's Your Money on Voice America Business.
2: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
3: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and our guest today, Dr. Stuart Lord, who is the president of Naropa University, is sharing with us some of his perspective on leadership and how he has developed his own leadership. So, Stuart, you know, you were talking about how you had to intentionally give up being so hard on yourself. We were talking about how high achievers tend to, you know, have high expectations of oneself, and as I looked at all, everything you've accomplished um, on this very long list and um, all of your um, experience and, and clearly many, many roles in leadership across different universities, I was amazed. I thought, oh my goodness, this person did not consider stopping. You know, it was very clear to me the story that was told from this depiction of you was this is an overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) This is a person who doesn't say something can't be done. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: And so I'm intrigued by the idea that, you know, you finally got to this place where you said, you know, somehow I've got to be able to... Treat myself differently. Is that the same as needing to be happier
4: with oneself? Um, I, I guess that's a, a way of looking at it. Needing to find enjoyment and happiness mm. in all things, and moving the clutter so it, it, it can be there. Mm. And so, what the quality of what you give—it's from a sense of being able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. And uh, being able to, to to be real and being able to, 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 you know, in all of it, having fun. Not to say I didn't have fun in all the other things, but, you know, there's it, a, a greater intention on, you know, the quality that I bring to it right. and the quality that I receive from it.
3: You know, you hear a lot of leaders um, in various places, and you hear a lot of parents, too, say things like, well, you know, I know I'm really hard on myself, but I don't expect others to have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you see leaders who work outrageous hours, and they say, oh, but I don't expect my people to do that. Uh And um, do you think that it's possible to not do what, um, (laughs) you know, you say?
4: Well, you know, I I understand those phrases because I probably have said some of those things. Uh-huh. See, and, you know, I guess a workaholic would say that they love what they do and therefore it's not work.
3: Yes.
4: So, I, you know, I, I've convinced myself that I've never had a job. uh
5: yeah.
4: I've never had a job. I've just had opportunities yeah. to live life fully and lots of responsibilities to do some interesting great things and so I put in lots of hours but also I work hard and I play hard mm. so I may I you know there's a balance that I yeah. you know I I, I I like having a nice dinner I like taking myself out to dinner or or yeah. going out with others and so it's so when I'm working hard I'm fully engaged in working hard but when I take a weekend off to be with friends or family I'm fully there are, I'm not engaged with the office, so it's like play hard, work hard, and to me that's a that's a balance that I uh, I have no problem in, in, in playing hard and fully being there playing, and then showing up in the office working hard, but also finding play in work is so hmm. important.
5: Talk
3: more about that finding play in work.
4: Finding that's play hard. in work. Well, you, you know you have to laugh, you have yeah. to bring a sense of humor to it. Um, you can you know the the, the task can be accomplished, and whether I'm going to do it or someone else is going to do it, that it was much more fun to do it together <laughs> and to have fun with it. And yeah. so, you know, uh, to to be honest about how hard it is, but also, you know, maybe have a meal while you're working, uh, is playing, um, you know, l- looking for creative insight and, and listening and sometimes not uh, speaking first. Is a way of playing with your own ideas and playing with others, and then you know, um, recognizing uh, what other people are doing and encouraging them to play with you. So you know, like uh, going on a walk and having you know having a walking meeting um, and having that conversation away from the office mm. uh, are, are ways of, of interrupting the uh, the ongoing mundane work that we do.
3: Even simple things like that do make a big difference sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah. just getting out of the office or, or... And some of it is just the element of surprise, you know, saying mm-hmm. to somebody, well, let's just go outside. What? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? You know, changing changing your environment, ch- yeah. changing, you know, where, where you're having the conversation. I know we had a meeting today at 9 o'clock, and there was lots of laughter in the room. We were dealing with some, some serious subjects, mm-hmm. but we're still finding a way to laugh. And I always try to figure out a way to... To bring some laughter in and uh, and play, you know, my drama background allows ah, me
5: yeah. allows me
4: some of that, and to be able right. to, to to see things lightly, and you know, so I always uh, try to and do not mind laughing at myself in front of others.
5: Yes. Yeah.
4: yeah. yeah. Not taking
3: oneself too seriously. Yeah, right? for sure. Sure. So, what drew you to Naropa? Tell us a little bit about Naropa and what drew you to that.
4: Well, Europa is a, uh, an, a, we're a Buddhist-inspired university. We try to bring together East and West uh, styles of uh, of learning, uh, meditation, contemplative practices, ways that develop awareness and insight and creativity around the arts and psychology and uh, literature. And so, what drew me to Europa is um, I met some of the graduates from Naropa mm-hmm. uh, even before I was even considering being uh, the president. And I, because of their way of being in the world and what they were excited about, I began to ask myself some questions about, you know, how I would be different had I went to Naropa and mm-hmm. not gone to Texas Christian University.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And my answers were that um, when I was at TCU, I found professors who taught from the heart, who, who fully were concerned about my mind, my heart, and my soul—the hmm. holistic approach to education. And those professors, boy, did they light a lifelong learning for me. You know, I think of a professor in religion, or I think of another professor who came came in class one day crawling to get our attention. And another professor gave a lecture on angels wear sunglasses because <laughs> uh, they were blinded by the, the the darkness in the world, and and that when we studied um, the we studied Genesis, but we, we we did the whole course outside when we studied mm. Genesis, mm. and we got in touch with water and elements. So I thought that wow, that those professors that I sought after at TCU who really Uh, tapped into my uh, learning that there would be an abundance of professors here at Naropa, that that that, that would be the norm. And so that got me excited about this place. And then one of the things in our mission that when I learned about the place, in the mission it says that we believe in the inherent goodness of all human beings. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: And I think of any institution I've worked at, that that's a fundamental principle by which we believe inherent goodness, and which taps into the individual student where they are. We work with that, and what drew me was my life mission in higher education has always been to prepare students to think and act as ethical leaders and responsible citizens in the global world. And the ROPA's mission is to prepare students to. Um, meet the world as it is, and change it for the better. Mm. And so when I think about the mission of the Roper, my life's mission, that there is so much harmony between the missions that it was an exciting opportunity to think about coming here. And when they made the decision that they chose me as president, that it's, um, it's a way for me to be fully present in what I'm committed to and what I believe, and how we prepare students to own the problems of the world. That the world's problems become our students' problems, Mm -hmm. and we prepare them to work with the problems, not to add confusion to the problems, but to show up fully and work with those problems and ask a new set of questions in dealing with the world's problems.
3: Hmm. So you must have to really walk your talk in this place.
4: Absolutely. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: All of us people, do. All of us do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you give people uh permission to um push back on you to um disagree? You know, what's your style?
4: I don't I don't have to give them permission.
5: <laughs> they take it. <laughs>
4: they take it. Um you know, it's um I think the style has to do with uh deep listening. Mm. And listening deeply is a way of of being present in our community. And so the styles have to do with, first of all, I think it's so important as a leader and to be president with our community is to listen deeply. So I spent my first year in listening circles, listening. I probably, I think when we added up, we had so many listening circles that it was like 450 people. Really? That participated, and I just spent the first year listening and trying to figure out in that what was common and what were people's aspirations. And were these
5: from, students? Were these these students?
4: were students, faculty, uh-huh. staff, alumni, and community members
5: hmm.
4: asking them what did they think about Naropa, what were their aspirations and hopes for Naropa, and... Um, so I began to hear lots of things and, and what advice would they give and, and, and where do they see our challenges and where do they see our future and hopes and dreams and aspirations and so that's, you know, that, that's deep listening and then taking that le- listening into operational ways of, of, of enhancing institution so from there is trying to establish a way of inspiring a shared vision helping so. people go ahead, sorry
3: so, go ahead, finish your spot. Uh,
4: inspiring a shared vision, uh, which allowed us to think about our challenges and challenging the process, encouraging the heart, and enabling others to act. Hmm. And then, one of the things that really is so important here for all of us is modeling the way and encouraging yeah. the heart. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, and, and those listening circles is, is certainly a model of the way. And I'm curious, So, were were these big gatherings, small gatherings? Some of them
4: were. uh, Again, I started listening circles before I even started as president. Once I was um, appointed as president, I came twice in the summer Mm -hmm. and met with people one-on-one. So the first level of listening circles was one-on-one with staff. Mm -hmm. And I think I did about uh, 65 people one-on-one. And then from there, we did listening circles with three to five people. Mm-hmm. And then we had some with 12 people. And then we also had continuing ones with uh, one-on-one. And um, so, we, you know, various groups, and depending on the situation. Uh, right. They were formal and informal. Uh, mm-hmm. I had faculty. I've had all the faculty at my house for dinner. So we had groups of 12 the first year for dinner. And we still do that. And I also have open office hours on Mondays where anyone can come in, uh, they sign up, and it's basically another listening circle, a way for me to listen, for me to hear, and for me to stay connected to what matters to the people who work here and who study.
3: Well, you know, it makes sense that you would have small groups, and I I know that... Often, new leaders come in and they try to have meetings, but they tend to be really large-scale meetings, Mm -hmm, kind of -hmm. a town hall thing. And and, um, they expect people to be willing to speak up in front of large crowds. And, um, in fact, that rarely works. So it's exciting that you were willing to really create the space where Mm -hmm. individuals' voices could be heard. And that, that speaks very
4: well of you. And I promised him two things. One, I would listen, and two, I would promise nothing mm-hmm. in a way that disciplined myself to just listen and hear, mm-hmm. and then from there, uh, because, you know, a lot of ways people are suggesting or they just want an opportunity to say certain things right? and try to practice uh, deep listening with that and discipline just to hear it. But then they were every you know when you have so many of them you begin to hear common themes. Sure. And then I reported back to the community uh, after a year on what I heard, mm-hmm. and then began to use some of that in you know when when, I, when we set priorities at the beginning of the year, and when we set priorities uh, for um, things that we're trying to to enhance or my work with the different vice presidents. A lot of that comes out of listening circles. A lot of that comes out of, you know... Um, so the agenda, they help set and frame the agenda because in a lot of ways, I'm here as an enabler, you know, by encouraging and, and, and you know, the shared vision and looking at the challenges and, and creating a process for that and mm-hmm. and being grounded with a sense of encouraging the heart. And that w- all of these things, I think what what really is key here that you can't just listen without leading to action.
5: Mm.
4: Because, yeah. you know, people can say, yeah, you're a good listener, but where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. And the evidence is in the action that you take or the decisions that you make. But the goal is to, to bring back people the reminder that, remember, we have these sessions, and here's what we heard, and here's the result of – because if people begin to see that from listening – there is an outcome of action that goes back to the listening. Then I think people are more willing to participate in the listening circle and continue to be able to give voice to, um, you know, helping frame decisions.
3: Absolutely. So well, we have this. more to talk about with Stuart Lord when we come right back.
1: Or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media.
0: Can you keep up? Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network.
2: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
3: Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with our special guest today, Dr. Stuart Lord, President of Naropa University. So, Stuart, we we talked a bit about um, how you began your presidency and and the deep listening that you did for over a year with listening circles. Uh, How did you then decide? I mean, I know you said you heard themes, but how did you then decide what was most important to approach first? You must have heard hundreds of ideas.
4: Yes, Uh, and then you, you have some hunches. You have some intuition,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and you also have we have we have some governing bodies. We have the board of trustees, and we have our governing group of faculty, and then there's a cabinet. And so the goal was to bring some of that to those different groups,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and then begin to prioritize what we were hearing. I think we heard a lot about a um, budget. And how do we build a sustainable budget? And how do we grow our revenue? And how do we honor our people with wages?
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And so I think the outcome of that is that a year later we're able to announce that we're going to increase faculty wages. Oh wow! For I think and uh, and the trustees voted on that. Uh, the outcome of that is that we have a balanced budget. And, and that we're, we're we're spending and growing our revenue in ways that that that, that ensure the future of the organization. Mm. Um, we heard that uh, how do we enhance our academic uh, programs? And we have we got a grant from the uh, Title III from the U.S. government, oh.
0: Department of Education,
4: to enhance our academic program and uh, extend our reach further to diverse communities. And enhance our quality of the uh, student experience. And so a lot of these things we were hearing in the uh, listening circles. And um, so we began to, you know, we, through our accreditation, we also had to, we went through accreditation and we had our creditors' voices come in and tell us things that they were hoping that we would work on. And then we begin to prioritize, and you know, and every uh, four to three months we look back on on our priorities, we measure where we're going, and establish a sense of shared accountability.
3: Accountability. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and it's great to hear this because we are hearing all across the globe, much less all across the U.S. how Universities, higher education institutions are struggling. Um, are focusing on cutting, cutting, cutting programs and people and um, opportunities out of their programs, and um, it makes me wonder. You know, what's the secret? What is it you guys are doing differently?
4: Well, I think. This, well, I'm not sure there's a secret. I think what we did we did have to do the discipline of looking at our cost and looking at our expenses, and we had to reduce our expenses. Mm-hmm. So we did have to do some cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to sort of uh, decrease so we can increase.
3: Right.
4: And how do we, you know, so if, if we make these hard decisions, we also have to reward the people who work here and invest right. in them. Right. But if, you, if, if you're so thin, then you can't make the proper investments in the people or your program. And so we made the hard decisions, we, 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 we did the cuts, we did the shrinkage, or the, uh, we, we reduced costs, exactly. and to reinvest those dollars into our future. So we and built so an equation of that if we do A, then we have a greater chance of, of, of B, and that is supporting our programs and people, which will allow us to position ourselves for greater growth.
3: Well, and that's one of the um, real uh, assets you bring to this organization is your business acumen. You know, everything I read about you um, in your previous roles talked about your business acumen and how you are able to manage a program or, um, you know, have high skill in the operating arena. And... You you don't have an MBA. How did you learn all this?
0: I had
4: lots of good mentors, Mm -hmm. and I've always been given responsibility as a young person whether I had the skills or didn't have the skills. Hmm. So I've always been given jobs or responsibilities that people believed that I could do it.
5: Hmm.
4: And this goes all the way back to Boy Scouts. I was probably one of the youngest Boy Scout directors, and I was an assistant camp director uh, in inner-city camp. And, and so when I worked in Washington, I mean, I had 400 people on staff, and I was learning by the seat of my pants. <laughs> uh, but I had good people give me advice. Hmm. And I always hired up. I mean, I try to surround myself with people who have many more skills than I have. And wow. I learned from them. And so I remember I hired a CFO... At, uh, when I was at the Tucker Foundation who had years of experience and people said that he was overqualified and I said that's the person I want because that's the person I'm going to learn the most mm-hmm. and, I've, and I've been honest with people I said to them you know I want to learn um, the side of business that I don't have an MBA on but I want you I want to be a student I want you to teach me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that's how I've been able to to do that and supplement my education because the education is a lifelong process. I've also attended many, many long uh, either weeks or two-week sessions on business, mm-hmm. on accounting and management, and have, have you know, spent a couple years in, in just taking seminars, supplementing my education, but also making sure that I had the experiential piece with it.
3: Mm. So, you know, you've been there a year now and it's probably too early to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> so, so as you look out into your future, um, you know, maybe sometime after Naropa, who knows how many years that will be, You know, what would you like to be doing?
4: Well, I, I think as, as I look forward to Naropa, uh, one of the things that we're looking at, and I look forward to the discussions that we're going to have next year, is I've always used the phrase that we're too good not to be better.
5: Mm, I and like how do that. We,
4: and how do we focus on being better? Mm. And that conversation, we're too good not to be better, to focus on being better, what does that look like? And we have three campuses, three locations, and begin to lay the groundwork for the question to dream, mm. what would it look like to have one campus? Wow. Where would we have one campus in Boulder, Boulder County, and how would we meet our needs for our students greater, how would it enhance what we do with our faculty, our education delivery, our capacity to be engaged in the community. I have this dream of a communiversity where the community and the university think together of its needs, where the library, the rec center... Classrooms on weekends and evenings are, are open for, for community members to, to teach a course. And so, I, so so the future for me, which is I get excited about, you know, Naropa has a strong history, but how do we make sure that as we, uh, we're more deliberate at growing and have one campus? And I think that's um, the conversation that we begin next year.
3: That's really big, Communiversity. I communi- love
4: that word. A Yeah, <laughs> that's I, I, good. I spoke at the Bioneers conference and launched that theme. And I think in two weeks or three weeks from now, I'm gonna we're gonna have that conversation for Earth Day. Oh. And it's about you know having a green campus because you know the carbon footprint that I don't think universities can continue to expand as silos. Right. As the centers where people. Are integrated from the community, hmm. you know, because some young people don't have a chance to ever be on a college campus, and then we right. say to them, "When you become seventeen or sixteen, think about going to college."
5: Yeah.
4: But think what happens if you grow up in a community where the college community is your community, and you're interacting with the community, and there's retail right on the community uh, on, on community campus. Hmm. And so, as a community, is how do we think about the quality of life for a university and the quality of life for a community, where are the sections of integration that all can benefit? So the library, you know, you have a community library and a university library, but how do you have a library that's open to, to all who like knowledge? What a gift. Yeah. Yeah, it
3: could be a you know, and it's Seems a bit contrarian in some ways, um, because I think a lot of universities are trying to look at how can we um, have a lot of satellites.
4: Yes, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And
3: you're trying to aggregate your energy in one place.
4: Yep. Not to say that we may not have we, we could have some satellites, but even if we have satellites, how do we make sure those satellite spaces are still Places where communities are welcomed and, and can be used.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the, um, given that Naropa is, the roots of Naropa come from Buddhism, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I know that um, a lot of the principles of Buddhism are practiced on campus um, and in your way of being. Is do you think that's going to be a an impediment in any way in in trying to become more integrated into a community?
4: Well, we're ecumenical and a lot you know we're we're, we're we're Buddhist inspired, but we're ecumenical, non sectarian institution mm-hmm. where we welcome all and so we're we're you know we practice uh, openness and, and and diversity and you know my, myself as an American Baptist minister. <laughs> You know, so you know, you talk about East and West.
5: Yeah. In my view, as a human
4: being, as a leader of an institution, that uh, so no, I don't think there. I th- you know, and a lot of Buddhism is a way of engaging in the community. You know, social uh, responsibility and action. You know, contemplative action, contemplative service, or service in the world, and so you know, um, I'm sure some people may, may see as an impediment, but. You know, um, as we begin to build bridges and, and and become active agents in the community, then I think people will, will begin to see how we model what we really want in the world.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So what's your
3: biggest personal challenge as president of this organization?
4: My biggest personal challenge?
5: Uh-huh.
4: Well, I'm a sprinter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the biggest personal challenge is to, you know, this is a long marathon. Mm-hmm. This is a long marathon. And so the big, because, you know, I, as a sprinter, you know, you get to see the end of the finish line before you even yeah. start. Right. And so being a leader, as I said to the people, I said one of my biggest challenges are is I have to remind myself that this is a long marathon, that it takes lots of engagement uh, lots of time reflection, uh, lots of time for collaboration and shared vision, and that we can 't rush to make a decision, but we be mindful, but we still have to make decisions and so is is that you know how do I um, learn to become a marathon runner mm-hmm. and, and, and 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 to pace myself with a sense of of vision, motivation, and enthusiasm? Yeah.
3: So do you practice daily contemplation, meditation?
4: Yeah, I mean, Is, I, I, my personal practice in the morning and, and in the evening and the afternoon, I practice that. And, and you know, and in between, you know, before we're making decisions and how do I, you know, allow that moment of self-reflection and deep deep thinking and listening mm-hmm. uh, to, to be a part of decision-making and, you know, and how do I allow prayer to, to, to be really present in, in 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 my life and in decisions that have to be made and uh, and be uh, not afraid to say you know what we didn't uh, the decision was not a good decision mm. and being and being honest about that and learn, and but use that as a learning opportunity you know as a learning situation because we're a university so we can we, we have to practice our values of learning and assessment. And evaluation is part of what it means to be a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. And to know that, you know, uh, it takes a long, it takes preparation for the race and then to, to perform the race. And so that's the, the personal challenge. And I think the meditation, the prayer, the mindfulness at work, the self awareness, the authentic leadership of being honest and showing up and being present, all those are part of being a marathon runner.
3: Well, Stuart, I I hear the sprinter in your voice, and I also hear the marathon runner who is committed to really making success, long-term sustainable success, happen with Naropa and whatever else you get involved with. And we've come to the end of our show already, and I know people are going to want to know more about you and Naropa, so how can they reach you?
4: Well, we love people to uh, visit our webpage, They can find more about Naropa University and Contemplative Education along with Authentic Leadership on our website, and that's www.naropa.edu.
3: Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for being here, Stuart. We so appreciate you taking the time. And uh, you sprinted pretty well through this hour. (laughs) (laughs) It gave us a whole lot of marathon planning to think about.
4: (laughs) Thank you. I I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, Uh, to have done this, and thank you.
3: And remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.